Hello and welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. Today's episode is about the French Dispatch and I am joined for the first time in like two and a half years by my friend Arjun Call who's, you know, here to talk about a movie that's just a hop, skip and a jump away from Hellboy. How you doing, Arjun? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm doing good. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, wow, it has been two and a half years. I totally forgot. You talked um, about Hellboy, which I uh, not a great movie. Yeah. <laughs> it was oh god, that that is not aged super well. Yeah, yeah, was, yeah, I think there was the last um when we did that when we did that last podcast, there was some sense of like shared optimism between like me, you, and like Elijah, maybe like saying like you know maybe this will age well, maybe we'll see it like you know a bit more nicely. That has not happened. Can, cannot say I've been compelled to go back and uh, watch that one. Uh, and like I and like I, I I'm not going to say I love the French Dispatch, but it's easily a better movie and easily one that I would be eager to rewatch because uh you know that's just the kind of movies that Wes Anderson makes. You can watch again and probably take a take a have like a whole other laundry list of takeaways of things that you might have overlooked on your first viewing. But uh, so the French Dispatch, like I said, is the newest movie from writer director Wes Anderson, his first since 2018's Isle of Dogs. Uh. It tells the story of a fictional magazine uh, that's an offshoot of a uh, newspaper that from Kansas called the Kansas Evening Sun that had a travel log that kind of went overseas at the behest of editor Arthur Howitzer Jr., played by Bill Murray. And then it turned into its own bureau in uh, a fictional town of Ennui, France. And as the movie opens, Arthur Howitzer has died and kind of left instructions for what should be the last issue of his magazine. And the movie, in a way, is kind of takes the form of a magazine with a little bit of a, a prologue and a a few features and its own kind of obituary at the end. And in doing so is kind of just like in an, an anthology movie in its own right. And as most Wes Anderson movies do has its own uh, laundry list of A-list actors. And uh, they all get to take part in some varied stories. Uh, the first, the, the, well, the first, I don't want to say uh, the first full story, but that little kind of anthology I referenced at the beginning called the cycling reporter has Owen Wilson, a frequent Wes Anderson collaborator, giving us the lay the land of ennui and showing how it's changed and not changed in other ways there's a one called the concrete masterpiece that tells the story of a incarcerated artist played by benicio del toro and his his work as a painter inspired by his muse who also happens to be his prison guard played by leah sadu there's revisions to a, man, a manifesto where timothy chalamet plays a student leading an uprising in ennui where that francis mcdormand's reporter is reporting on and then the private dining room of the police commissioner which stars jeffrey wright as a james baldwin type figure as I think I might have neglected to mention before, the Kansas Evening Sun is a little bit of a homage to the New Yorker in and of itself. Wes Anderson has talked a lot in his uh, interviews about how he was, how he's just a big fan of the New Yorker and collects them and all that. But in the, but basically in the, I, I don't even know how I could give a two sentence synopsis of the the private dining room of the police commissioner. But uh, Jeffrey Wright is reporting on a on a police lieutenant who also happens to be a chef for the commissioner. But the commissioner's son gets kidnapped and hijinks ensue. We'll get to that one. Uh, but before we dive into these uh, individual stories, Arjun, I, I guess I just want to ask you, I know you're a fairly big Wes Anderson fan in some way, and I think he's a very well-respected guy, but he, he can be divisive in some ways. And I would say in some ways, I might sometimes share some of the criticisms that some people have of his work, though I do have some of his movies I've really liked. I don't necessarily connect with the, the, the bulk of them, maybe on the level that I would like to, and it seems like a lot of people do. So I want to ask, given your overall feelings about Wes Anderson as a filmmaker, when you hear he's going to make a movie that is in some ways an, an homage to The New Yorker, but set in France, and then you see that cast, what are you kind of thinking and what are you hoping to get out of that? Which is, an, which is a question I, I've been asking a lot of people to start off podcasts, but like, I think when you go into a movie that's been pitched like this one was, like, you, you, could, you, you could expect any number of things. Going in, I honestly didn't expect to love this as much as I did. Um, I... I'm a huge Wes Anderson fan, as you said. Um, I think he's one of my favorite working directors. Um, and I sort of understand the criticism, the criticisms people have of him, but I sort of, I don't know. I, I think I always manage to sort of see another side, mm -hmm. or maybe just imagine another side. Not to say either either side is right, but just I, I, I seemingly usually love the things that a lot of other people just sort of don't like about <laughs> him or his detractors seem to not like about him. You know, um, and and... I, I didn't expect this to be fantastic because I I was thinking about it before before you know before coming on this call and I I think Isle of Dogs might be my least favorite of his even though sort of I still like it quite a bit but um, I think Isle of Dogs might be my least favorite of his so I sort of thought I, I wasn't going in with huge expectations and especially because 
anthology movies are hard to, to like they rarely sort of land well like and i mean the only two i can think of are i think new york new york where martin sorsese directed one awful segment and um that one with uh that one with tim roth um and he plays uh, four rooms and that's that's uh, they're both both of those are awful i've, like, I've actually so, never i've actually never seen it in new york new york um, I haven't made it through New York, New York. I, I've seen four, all of four rooms, but I did not make it through New York, New York. It was just, yeah, I could not. Um, so anthology films are hard to do. And in many ways, I think this is not really as much of an anthology film as it's marketed as. Too many as is in that sentence. But yeah, this, is, this, isn't a huge, this isn't exactly an anthology film. It's more, I don't know exactly how to describe it. It is very much like presented like a magazine, like continuity um but sort of thematically linked stories that are separate subject wise but they all have this sort of like through line in them um and they're all linked by bill murray's character arthur howitzer who's based on i think an amalgamation of the editors of the new yorker in the yes. 60s yes and i think I, I love how they sort of build the stories are and you know the story is it, it's an anthology insofar as much as they're separate subjects but the stories very much build on the overall themes of the movie. I think, um, you know, I, I think uh, the first one sort of introduces these themes of, um, you know, loneliness and fulfillment. Um, the second one is, I think, sort of takes a bit of a break from that, and it sort of examines them from a distance. It's, I think, the funniest one. It's one of the, it's, it's, you know, maybe the most ridiculous one. It's, it's Timothy Chalamet shows a remarkable ability to seemingly make fun of himself. Um, in that one, and then the second, and then the third one, which is I think far and away my favorite, just really rams home these themes of, you know, um, yeah, loneliness and the, the quality of art that comes from loneliness. The 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 idea of art as a way to reach out, and and having faith in what people write when they write from the heart. There's this wonderful scene, which I think was released as like a clip because I've watched it a bunch of times since then. Um, um, I'm not just on YouTube. It's where um, it's the meeting at the beginning of the film where they talk about how the magazine's going to be assembled and how they have way too many pages. And they say, like, we need to cut one of the writers, like, we need to cut one of the stories, you know, which one are we going to cut? And they go through each of them. And it's funny. I should mention that I think this is his outright funniest movie that he's made mm. so far. I think he really, really goes all in on the physical comedy. Like, the, the you know, the Owen Wilson story is just, like, there's barely, I mean, it's cool and it's interesting and that specific story recalls a lot of like uh grand budapest hotel sort of commentary about aging and change and you know the changing landscape and the sort of the somberness of that personality leaving even if it's replaced by something objectively more clean and interesting but even though that story yeah even though you know you can get a lot from that story that story is basically just five minutes of just physical comedy he just falls downstairs i think a few times in that story and you know it's He's like riding, like trying to ride his bike by like while like trying to catch the bus, and it's sort of it's sort of ridiculous. And so I think this is his outright funniest movie. Well, I well I liked what you said about focusing in on that scene where they're talking about what they need to cut from the paper because yes, I, yeah, yeah. He keeps mentioning, it and it, it's funny, but he keeps bringing it up, and um, he keeps bringing up, you know, like where they, everyone else keeps saying we have to cut these, uh, we have to cut this writer, and then Bill Murray keeps saying we can't. Um, they can, and the, the phrase they use is the phrase they use is kill him, and which is slang, I guess. I can't kill him. Yeah, or like kill the story or something. And then he keeps giving reasons why. Basically, he wants these people's voices to be heard. He there's sort of this unerring faith in people, seemingly often overlooked people wanting to write what they you know wanting to write what they want. And, you know, and I think there's that scene links beautifully with the scene in the third story where. I guess all these spoilers for the movie, if no one's, you know, if, if, yeah, don't worry if, about it. If, yeah, um, in, in the scene, uh, in the scene from the third story where um, um, Bill Murray breaks Jeffrey Wright's, or not breaks, bails Jeffrey Wright's character out of jail and basically gives him a job because he's been uh, arrested for being an openly gay man in um, in the in the six in the fifties, and um, or whenever that story takes place, and. Uh, and yeah, Bill, Bill Murray, and he calls his only contact in the city, which is Bill Murray's character, who he's met once or something. And uh, Bill Murray's character basically gives him that job interview. And it's wonderfully touching because it's basically you see the faith that Bill Murray's character has in people writing from the heart and people writing, you know, 
about things that speak to them and people wanting to make other people feel less alone. And I lo- and after after the movie, I think I looked back and saw that in each of the stories. And I found it interesting how the writers get more connected to the stories as the movie goes on. You know, Tilda Swinton is this sort of enigmatic. Yeah. Hosting like, a lecture, talking yeah. about it, yeah. Yeah, and then Frances McDormand embeds herself in the story. And there's a lot there about, you know, how there's hints of, I think, I guess how she's, she feels lonely that she's growing older. She's, she's you know, wondering if that this is the thing that she should be doing. And um, not the writing, but, you know, having an affair with Cindy Shelley, all of that. And then in the third story, obviously, it's very much that is, that is more Jeffrey Wright's character story than it is anyone else's. And it's, yeah. It's beautiful. I love that. I could definitely see it through on you're talking about. I, I I have more complicated feelings, I would say, or uh, uh, more conflicted feelings, I would say, about the the third act. But like I, I, I actually zeroed in on a more funnier moment in that opening scene when, when he's talking about which writer's work he's going to have to cut because he ends up saying at one point, well, cut the ads, which made me laugh out loud because that is something that would never happen today in print media. You know, like it's just, it's in such a different place, and that and that kind of tied into why I was I was intrigued about this movie because, as most people know, I was a journalist in a former life, and so the idea of Wes Anderson kind of taking on the journalism industry with his sensibilities excited me, uh, just because I. I'm someone that like can't always connect to his movies and doesn't like find the emotional through line and which I is a common criticism for some of them. I it's just I don't think I've really connected with a lot of them that deeply aside from uh Rushmore and Fantastic Mr. Fox, though I, I would agree with anyone who says like the, the Luke Wilson character in Roll Tenenbaums is very tragic, though like the movie on the whole, the tone is just like I, I feel like a lot of like his tone is often like in service of like fairly serious subject matter in a way that I have trouble getting on the same wavelength as when it's like, it, it just feels a little off, but like, I thought like, Oh, I could really dig seeing this go along with like, I, I could really dig seeing this go along with like a, the journalism industry, which is just kind of rife to be poked fun at and like all the mistakes it's made and the way, how, how it was so much better back then and where we are now. So just the, even the idea of them like saying we'll kill an ad. I really got to kick out of that though. At the same time, like you said, the anthologies are tough. So while I was like, all right, I, I kind of like your sensibilities. I see a lot of potential here. I feel like I just felt more emotion in any of the scenes that were actually taking place in the newsroom, which there just aren't that many of, as opposed to like what was going on in any one of those stories. And I would agree with you in that in the last act, uh, I, 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 it was so dense. Like it was so dense with all of the Wes Anderson stylings. Uh, voiceovers going in and out of animation, going in and out of color, and that I had trouble even following it. Though at the same time, I felt like I, I even I could recognize that Jeffrey Wright probably gave the most moving performance in the entire movie. So, mm-hmm. like, I found plenty of stuff to like, though, and, and, and like I came into it ready to embrace his tone more than I normally do. Though I think the format might have like just like held me back a bit, and then like him going full Wes Anderson in the third act when it's like maybe not my thing so much in the first place might have like just been a little too, been a bit challenging for me when I was trying to like maybe just follow it straight through. Though I get what you're saying in that like I don't think any three of these feature stories are necessarily like you know I I would agree in that in ways they are of a piece of each other. Like I do I do find a through line there, but at the same time. When you are dividing them up in anthologies, it's probably it, it is a little harder still to like develop any too much of an emotional bond with any one of those characters. Like the Fran McDormand one, I like I, I usually like her performances and stuff like that, and I kind of get I kind of felt what she was getting at a little bit, but at the same time, like, like you said, it's it's trying to be funny a lot too. So th- between the fact that you're not spending that much time with her, they're trying to be kind of funny at the same time while also showing her as this lonely figure that's not really sure where she, if this is where she needs to be at this point in her life. It's trying to do a lot in a short amount of time. So I guess my overall thing was that like I can recognize everything you're saying. Those maybe some of my natural inclinations to put his movies at arm's length a little bit were were still there, even if like I found more in the inherent subject matter to like intrigue me. If that makes sense. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I think like you know a lot of the things that like I, you know like I said before, I think a lot of the things that um, people seem to. A lot of things that seem to push people away, the sort of the Wes Anderson-ness of it all, as I keep seeing in like, you know, reviews and stuff, are things that seem to make me love it more sometimes. I, okay. I get that there's a limit, and I think that limit was for me, it was, I Love Dogs was approaching that limit, but it's, I you know, I, I just love it when um, 
which is something I guess you were mentioning that keeps you at a distance more. I, I love it when he's able to sort of uh, um, quickly flash back between or flash between or sort of you know show this 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 sort of distance uh, quirky sort of twee tone that's sort of you know a little emotionally dead and then just sprinkle it with sort of flashes of very what I what I feel is sort of often very deep sadness like um like Bottle Rocket his first movie and his arguably least sort of recognizable movie like it very much doesn't it's like a caper movie uh set in Texas where he grew up and it very much it, it doesn't have the sort of many of the Wes Anderson styles. I think Rushmore is the one where he first started to develop those but Bottle Rocket yeah, is I, a very sad movie <laughs> it's yeah well, I was I was just gonna say I I kind of agree with you there on Rushmore though. At the same time, I I feel like I connected to like Max Fisher more than I have any other character in any of his movies. Like that that felt more recognizably human and emotional in a way that like just I I just I I just have never gotten there with any other character in any of them. I I think the way you feel about Rushmore, I felt I feel quite a bit about a lot of uh, I don't know. I I feel I I definitely felt quite a bit about um, in 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 the French Dispatch. I did mm. I, I maybe I didn't feel connected to the characters necessarily. Except for Jeffrey Wright, I, I definitely felt quite a bit of, uh, you know, Jeffrey Wright's characters as someone who, I mean, both you know, largely as someone not not just as someone who is sort of a little bit lost at this present moment in life, um, but also someone who grew up in multiple places, as someone who you know, um, yeah, definitely feels a bit lost where wherever I'm living. That that definitely that definitely spoke to me. I think I think this is one of the first for me. This is one of the first movies where he's really nailed that sort of, um, you know, the connection between his sort of trademark silence, the whole use, the use of miniatures, the, all of that, the, you know, the, the pans and the zooms and the way that he's sort of, for me, this is the movie where he really, he's, he's recognized for the first time in a while that th these things sort of engage this kind of emotional distance. And, um, and that's not, that's, that's not always a bad thing. But I think in this movie he really started to sort of um, push on that and and you know just just flash really just amazingly sort of um, interesting and 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 deep and melancholy in between those like in in between those in between those sort of all all those sorts of songs in a way that I think he hasn't done since um, the Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou, which is one of my favorite movies ever. I think. Huh. Um, it, it, and I love it because if it's uh, sort of encroaching deep melancholy, it's really a movie that is hiding a lot of, of uh, the, the Life Aquatic Onion is really hiding a lot of, you know, just kind of pain underneath this ridiculous, stupid man played by Bill Murray. Not stupid, hmm. but you know what I mean. He's, yeah. he's a jackass. And yeah. And, you know, this movie doesn't go fully there. It's not fully, I, I, again, the exception is maybe Jeff Brown's character. Um, but um, I, I don't think this movie goes fully there. I don't think it's sort of constantly engaged with trying to hide or trying to show how it's hiding that sadness. But there are moments when it does reveal itself. And those moments really made the whole movie for me. Like, you know, I thought it was a really brilliant move to have that whole slapstick chase. And then in the third sequence, have that whole slapstick chase and then have that really, for me, that heartwarming conversation between the, the police lieutenant and uh Roebuck Wright, played by Jeffrey Baldwin, uh, Jeffrey Baldwin, Jeffrey Wright. Um, that sort of, that I think that's exactly one of the one of the moments that I liked, or one of the creative choices that I liked, and it's there in the other ones too. I think it was it was least there during the second segment. I think I would agree that the second segment is probably the one that, if the weakest out of the three, um, I even though I you know I loved it, I found it very funny. But you know, in the first segment, there are flashes of that too. There's sort of this, this, this comic, um, a lot of comedy, especially coming from Adrian Brody, who is surprisingly good in this movie. Yeah, I was well, surprised by how good he was. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, I've, been, I've been hearing a lot of people say that like it seems like he just like works better in Wes Anderson films than like most things these days. But like I was gonna say, yeah. like with what you were saying was that like I think it's for me it struck that balance the best in the first one, largely because I thought like that comedy was just so effective on its own that like, and I enjoyed like, even though like that, the more the comedy was coming from him and his cohorts, like I, in a way it was cool to see Benicio del Toro get to be comedic. Um, and it, yeah. he, he's, he's doing it more in a deadpan way for whenever he's, whenever they're going to him for the laughs. But like, 
I it just it just I did, felt I did like, love like what what had to have been an intentional homage to the usual suspects where he says like I think he like that that rant those character has in the usual suspects like, give me give me the keys you motherfucking something something and then he says that like line in the movie which was great but anyway oh. yeah I, I I totally missed that but I have not watched usual suspects in like over ten years um and i don't know if i'm gonna be doing any of it anytime soon that's fair um but but like i just thought like you know you you totally felt like you know his loneliness and i mean i i i feel like i may have listened to one other podcast or read one other thing about like oh i don't know like it, it was it even truly reconciling the um how or did it even have an obligation to reconcile any kind of issues there might be with a power dynamic between a prisoner and a guard sleeping together but at the same time like uh, if, if, if you can, if you can get past that and just accept, accept that for the purposes of the movie, I mean, like, I think you, because of Benicio's performance, like you really actually really did feel a lot of what that guy was going through. Cause in theory, it's like, uh, he, he can, he, it seems like he, he doesn't even particularly enjoy the painting, like all that much necessarily. And then, and then like he, he, I mean, whether or not he's actually in love with this woman, he's probably convinced himself he is, and he can't actually really be with her. So it's just like, he is like trapped in like more ways than one and uh, unable to really get him find himself fulfilled at all. Though I feel like the movie very seamlessly like goes to him for laughs whenever he is uh, sharing the screen with Adrian Brody, who is like effortlessly charming and also just gets to like hang out with Henry Winkler too. One of the bigger fle- casting flexes of this movie to like have Henry Winkler show up for two lines. I mean, is uh, getting that Elizabeth and, lost. Uh, Christoph Waltz for like 30 seconds. Yeah, I almost didn't realize that was him. Like, I was like, "Is yeah. that him?" Like, would would Christoph Waltz be in this thing for like two seconds? Like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, or like uh, Willem Dafoe is it for like you know, I think two scenes, one of which he's in a cage. I don't think he has any lines at all. Willem Dafoe is yeah, he, um, that a lot of big casting flexes in this movie. Yeah, no, for sure. And uh, um, it's just it's interesting you're saying on the like um, you know the deep like. Again, this sort of this this uh, this melancholy and this like frustration that Benicio del Toro's character feels, because I one of these moments that I loved the moments where Wes Anderson seemingly effort, effortlessly switches from comedy and then just like almost like uh, I don't know how to describe it almost like um, you know someone uh, um, almost almost like someone like lifting like a like like a tarp or something like covering off of a sculpture to show like the tiniest corner and then just like and it's or like and actually you know what a better way to describe it is um almost like someone opening the pop friction briefcase for like a the brief uh-huh. a second and the orange light comes out and then they snap it shut again i like there were so many moments of that in this movie where he just you know there's this veneer of comedy and then just quickly opens the briefcase and there's this deep sadness and then quickly shuts it again and i love those but one of the biggest parts i loved in the first uh the first story about that was when there was this um, his whole backstory where he was played by uh, my 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 closest celebrity lookalike. Tony. <laughs> um, I was so proud of that, um, and uh, he, you know, and that's I think that's obviously comedy, like the whole like he's he's. I mean, there's a bit of pathos in there, but like it's obviously you know it shows how he's drank, drank and smoked and like you know slept and rolled his way through life, and and then it gets to when he gets put into prison. And you know the comedy's still rolling. Then it's like ten years later, even though it's obviously implausibly ten years later. <laughs> and um, and then and then there's this very touching moment where instead of them just switching places, I, I'm sure you remember. Like instead of them just switch switching places, um, because they play young and older versions of one another, they're facing the camera, and Tony Revolori, the younger Moses Rosenthaler, uh, gets up, and I think he takes off his smock. And his brush and hands it to Benicio del Toro, the older version of himself. Mm-hmm. And then they share this really mournful and sad look. That's just like you can. There's so much in that like look. That's just like Benicio del Toro is just like like you know, just like looking like really sadly. He's like he he want, I, I got so much from that, which I love. Like he 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 wants to feel he wants to feel happy that he's grown. He wants to feel. You know the way you're supposed to feel when you're grown, like no nostalgia, but he just can't. He's 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 trapped, and he doesn't know how to feel that. At least he knows how to feel an approximation of that with Leia to do. But there's that there's so much of that deep frustration and that deep sadness there, and he's just like he looks at the younger version of himself, and then the younger version of himself just walks off screen, and he like longingly looks back, and then it just cuts back to the comedy, which I I I, I love that. 
and there are so many moments of, of that. I think each story had a beat like that, but there was some, yeah, I, I love that very much. I also like appreciate that they were able to do that, but then also just like get a laugh out of it, me by having Benicio del Toro play a guy named Moses Rosenthaler, uh, in like in like a quick two throwaway lines explain why explain how he's actually kind of Jewish. Uh, it was it, it, it's it's just a I don't even want to call it a sight gag, just just a um just a funny bit. I guess I guess I just I'll, I guess I'll just go in order and hit these other two, and then we can uh, and do it that way. But I mean. Uh, did you well, actually before i even do that did you have any other thoughts um did you have any other thoughts on the uh concrete masterpiece i i i like that it gave a happy ending i think that was a bit of like you know wishful thinking on on wes anderson's part um mm -hmm. it like you know and i think that was noticeable in the movie that was the moment when it departed from like you know this is like this is slight obvious fantasy when it gives him a happy ending and it shows that he you know even if he doesn't find love again at least he apparently becomes Tilda Swinton's lover in later life and again implausibly because he's like 60 and I think the movie says he's like 30 but whatever it doesn't matter it's I, it gives him that nice interestingly happy ending and you know I I, I like that I, I think the movie that might be the happiest ending of the movies of the three of, of, of the three of them which is interesting because it's also the movie, it's also the story where the journalist is most detached from the story, which is making a point that I think you're probably better suited to think about than I am. But yeah. Yeah, I mean, like I, uh, I, I struggle a little bit to, to to say how like how effectively he is getting in the mind of journalists or uh, looking at this from the perspective of any journalist. I think it's it's I, I, in some ways it's a funny send-up of a probably a certain kind of new yorker writer just to like have Tilda swinton like uh even in that role hosting that event but that's i mean at, at times it's really I, I i honestly at times i think it's certainly an homage to magazines in a certain era of magazines though i don't know necessarily like outside of the jeffrey i mean or, or, or definitely at least in that first one i don't know if he's really necessarily trying to say a lot about it besides maybe just giving you an idea of hey this is a kind of story i could see like this kind of magazine having written at some point and then you're actually getting a, in the head of the writer like a little more in the next two and i think it's even with some of the issues we already touched on uh with respect uh with respect to uh revisions to a manifesto i mean i think it in certain ways probably does an effective job of getting in the psyche of a writer of that age though i was i am not that age and i will probably not be a writer when i'm at age because i'm you know went down a different path in life but uh, I guess I, I guess I, I yeah. yeah, but I guess I, I guess I do know people that are uh, either on their way to being that age of a writer, or I have known people that were that before. And like, um, you know, I, I it's, it, it is a profession that probably calls for oh, a lot of uh, time by yourself. And I, so I, I do think in and of itself, like seeing Frances McDormand, like uh, come to terms with that and really just, like question what the hell she's even doing in this place. It's like, it's, it's just kind of like a, a, a ridiculous, uh, it's got to feel a little ridiculous, like following these, uh, uh, these, these students around who are all just, I mean, I guess, I guess seemingly in theory doing something important, but at the same time are kind of like pretty goofy. Like you said, Timothy Chalamet is in certain, in very many ways in that role, poking fun of himself. And so if nothing else, like I, I, I do still, I, I did feel maybe something for that character. I just don't know if that corner of the movie necessarily works on a whole though. At some, I, I could certainly see a writer somewhere like that, fairly isolated going through something like that. And it's also funny in that like, yeah, it's uh, poking a little bit of fun at the biggest expense budgets that magazines probably used to have. But at the same time, I guess it is saying something about writers in and of themselves where it's like, yeah, just cause you get to like, you know, have a unlimited expense account to go like cover something in a foreign country uh, doesn't necessarily mean that that's going to make you any happier, you know, certain things and you, you still need certain things in life to actually feel fulfilled beyond just um, working in media in a more glamorous time to do so, working in print media in a more glamorous time to do so. So if nothing else, I did take that from that corner of the movie, but did you, did you get anything else more out of like the, the, this actual uprising story? Did you think it was an interesting uh, backdrop for these characters? And because uh, I mean, I know you said you really love the movie though at the same time, like maybe that one part, that was the one corner of the movie that didn't do it for you as much but what did you really uh dig about uh revisions to a manifesto you know i think this was this was the one that was most sort of straight comedy again it also had those brief sort of flashes of sadness especially toward the end of it but um 
it's interesting that you said, I think one thing you just said is a great way to sum up that segment, which is, uh, in theory, these people are doing something important. <laughs> um, in theory, sorry, in theory, these people are seemingly doing something important, which is a, a, a great way to sort of, you know, I, I think that's that sums up a lot of was what I like in terms of uh, what Francis McDormand's character felt. It was again the most straight comedy, but also one of the sort of the, the you know the straightest shooters of the three of the four three and a half slash four seconds, I guess. Uh, I mean, maybe five. I don't know. It's one of those, you know, Wes Anderson's. But um, the three, it's 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 the it's the most straight out of the three in terms of um, how it conveys. This is exactly what the characters are feeling. It outright says, I think, or you know, maybe it doesn't outright say. It becomes very close to outright showing that. Frances McDormand's character feels lonely and she feels regret that, you know, is the is this sort of hyper-independent life that she's chosen to pursue something that's really going to grant her much happiness in the long term. And there's a lot of, you know, that final speech where she basically tells uh, Timothy Chalamet and Lena, Lina Kudry, I don't know, I probably butchered the name, but Lina Kudry's character, um, the, the two teens on the opposite sides of the, on opposite sides of the, you know, and the boys revolutionary the boys and girls side of the revolution. It it um where that that final scene where she tells where she tells them basically go make you both off. like each other. Yeah, you both like each other, get on with your lives, go do something like there's a tinge of like frustration with herself in that too. And there's a tinge of like regret where like, you know, again what you just said with in theory these people are doing something important. I found it interesting that one of the biggest I, I felt one of the biggest character conflicts in that movie was or sorry in that segment was Frances McDormand's character doing something she clearly doing something that she knows she likes, reporting um, and embedding herself in sort of the thick of something that she can report and write about and writing about it excellently and you know writing as much as she can about it. And she still doesn't feel any more fulfilled. And I think she comes to realize at some point, like, you know, what I'm feeling is regret. This is maybe I have, maybe not for everything, maybe I have made some choices that I now regret. And uh, I, I guess I guess part of those are probably related to what you were saying about the you know the choices that a writer of that a writer of that caliber and that age has to make about you know needing to spend time alone needing to sort of even if it's not getting an unlimited budget to work in a foreign country that it's still an, a very introspective profession by nature and and I think a lot of and I think as that story moved on more and more it was it, it there was a really interesting juxtaposition between the really funny sort of inner monologue of, of, of Timothy Chalamet. I'm trying to remember some of the lines he says in that movie, which are just outright, like, this movie had to have been pitched at making fun of the persona that Timothy Chalamet has developed. I don't see any other way. Otherwise, Timothy Chalamet yeah, he, doesn't have any self-awareness at all. He was partially raised in France, too, so he's getting to, like, play, like... Yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah. So, so you, you did get a kick out of um, him showing his, a different type of comedic chops compared to, like, say, what he did in Lady Bird? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and I, I, I found that I thought it was really interesting juxtaposition between the outright funniness and immature fun in a good way, you know, the immature fun, like the immature humor of Timothy Chalamet's character and um, the increasing frustration that Francis McDormand feels. And, you know, at the beginning, it's an increase in frustration with uh, Zeffirelli, with Timothy Chalamet's character, who, you know, says he sort of... Uh, she, she sort of looks down on him with sort of like blase and like, of course, I don't want to, you know, sleep with you again. This is just, now let, let, leave, let, leave, let me write the story. Um, and I think she feels more and more frustrated and then eventually that frustration turns to herself and, you know, her loneliness and her perceived lack of fulfillment. And I don't think it's, I, I, I think out of the three stories, this one is the one that arguably ends without much of a resolution or with at least the saddest resolution for uh, the journalist, the main character, or at least the main character, you know, in the first one, the journalist is barely a character or is, you know, told us with insult, super funny, but the protagonist is very much Moses Rosenthaler. Um, and in the second one, it, it's sort of, uh, yeah, it, it, it there's not, there's, there's, yeah, the there's, yeah, there's not much of a necessarily res resolution for her that we see. Yeah, um, she, she feels, I think she feels lonely at the end and where she feels lonely and slightly unfulfilled at the end, even though she's just written this 14,000 or whatever word excellent article. And um, that's kind of it. We know that Timothy Chalamet's character goes on to have a star-crossed affair and then dies like two weeks later by falling off a radio, whatever, which was, you know, 
kind of out of place, but I, I thought it was still funny. But again, touches like that are maybe why this one is the weakest segment. But um, but it doesn't it doesn't say it interestingly doesn't leave much of a resolution for Francis McDormand. It's um, she still feels lonely at the end, and that's an interesting way to end it. Yeah. Um. It's, I, again, I even if you know on the whole maybe it doesn't work for me as much. I still think like she is still pretty great, and that 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 gets it somewhat far, if nothing else. You know, it's funny. I I know you said the the private dining room, the police commissioner was maybe your favorite, and like I explained before, like I found some stuff to like about it, though. Like I just think the very very Wes Anderson going for Wes Anderson the way he did probably just like really made it hard for me to like take in that story. So, I mean, I feel like that was the one we probably talked about the most before we like went backward again, but I, I am curious, like as you're watching that, are you, it seemed, it sounded like you were getting a lot out of like seeing where the Jeffrey Wright character, who I, I, I should say, I should say his character's name is Roebuck Wright. It seemed, it seems like you got a lot out of like the movie using him as it's emotional through line and uh, just a, a lot of the sentiments he's necessarily expressing. So when you're watching the private dining room of the police commissioner, do you even necessarily care about the actual potty aspects of it at all? Because I found myself having a little trouble even following it, even if I knew the kid got kidnapped and that was really about it. Or is that really just kind of secondary to everything else it has going for it, in your opinion? I think that up until that final conversation that we mentioned, I think it was very much like, um, you know, that, that final conversation really made me go back and look, look at look at what look at a lot of the actual plot and the plot is very you know it's entertaining it's fun and it's a fun caper movie and we know Wes Anderson likes caper stuff like that's you know that's basically what Bottle Rocket was Moonrise Kingdom has like hints of like a caper story um the Grand Budapest Hotel is basically just a caper story mixed in with like criticism of encroaching fascism it's it's you know it's um we know Wes Anderson likes that kind of thing and and that conversation made me go back and recontextualize a lot of the actual plot and I, I did. I did like it, even though I do think I do agree that mainly it probably does exist in service of the themes of the story, and not necessarily the other way, the other way around. I um, I found myself questioning why why is Jeffrey Wright's character so involved in this, and then I sort of realized again once, once that final conversation happened, why Jeffrey Wright's character is, is, is involved in this. And I think um, I don't know if you saw the souvenir with. Uh, with uh, Tilda on Tilda Honor Swinton Byrne, Tilda Swinton yeah. Sawyer, and and Tilda, um, yes, and and Tilda Swinton and Tom Burke and Richard Ayoade, um, who's fantastic in it. I saw it recently because I wanted to see it in preparation for the Souvenir Part Two. I saw it. Um, I saw it in theaters two years ago, but I, I I haven't rewatched it. But I probably would want to before I get before I watch the second one again. I would think there's there's a great line in the Souvenir where uh, Tom Burke's character tells. Honor Swinton's burn character, Honor Swinton Burns character, that um, something about filmmaking and something about writing stories, which is you know the the it's it's he, he gives her the advice and obviously you know he ends up well I don't spoil it for people who want to see want, the, the movie does not end well for him um, but he he, um, he gives Honor Swinton Burns character advice that basically says you should tell the truth or you should um you should tell the truth as you remember it or no sorry <laughs> you should tell me you, you, you shouldn't tell the truth um i can't remember what the exact wording is i don't tell the truth or don't talk about life as everyone saw it talk about it as how you remembered it and or as how you saw it so you know embrace the subjectivity and, and i think this is embrace the subjectivity of it and i think that's what this last three did so well and that's what i loved about it i i did definitely for a little bit for a moment get tired of the whole animation sequence but I sort of came around on liking that hmm. because I thought that was sort of a, a nice expression of how, again, I, I'm like maybe Jeffrey Wright's character or Roebuck Wright wasn't actually that involved in the chase. Um, but it was it was an interesting way of showing how how inserted he was into the story, and it was an interesting way of showing how I think a lot of the story was uh, the purpose of a, lot of, of a lot of that story was hiding the deep sadness that. Roebuck Wright feels that you know that um, that James Baldwin clearly felt in his in 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 his own writing, and I think out of the three stories, this is the one that's clearly most based on like a, a real people, even though it's also the most fanciful one. Like, uh, um, in the first story, I'm, uh, I mean, James Baldwin is specifically thanked in the credits, and he's a, a yeah a gay black well, writer. The, the, in, in the in the first story, there's there's um 
I don't know if I don't think any of the other characters are based on real people, except uh, I, I, I think Adrian Brody's character is, is based on uh, Lord Devine, who was this art dealer who basically uh, there's there's a quote by Lord Devine asking him uh, how he became so rich, and it basically just sums it up where he says, I, I invented the prospect of something like I invented the prospect of taking art from Europeans and selling it to Americans, where he basically <laughs> pioneered the idea of art dealing. Yeah, he was the first, one of the world's one of the world's first biggest commercial art dealers, and he got very rich with that. And he had a reputation for being a ridiculous man, like Adrian Brody was in the movie. But you know, that's I think that's the basis for his character in the movie. In the second one, obviously, the basis is probably the student protests in France in the mid-century. But outside of that, I don't really know if it's based on much that was real. But in the third one, I think there's a very clear like. It's not just based on James Baldwin. It's it's also like the style is based on James Baldwin and the the the, the deep you know the sadness and the alienation and the hiding that with the flourish of language and the humor is based on James Baldwin too. And yeah, I I sort of I recontextualize a lot of the more or a lot of the segments more capery and out there elements in 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 light of that I think because I liked how. You know, I've been saying this over and over again, so sorry about that. But I, I, I think this, the third segment, really perfected this sort of, this art of hiding, or not hiding, but making humor a nice, a, a glossy finish over deep sadness, hmm. like showing that deep sadness for the briefest of seconds and then putting it back. So let me ask you then on, because I, I hear you on that, and though I, I just don't have a lot of other thoughts on a lot of the rest of that part of the movie because I. And I honestly found it rather hard to follow, though I can still see what you're saying with respect to humor kind of covering up the sadness. The only other question I was going to ask you about that part of the movie was, look, I I, I generally always love seeing Shearsa Ronan and stuff. Do you, is it almost like she is like too big to have pop up in that role? Or do you just have to accept that's what's going to happen in a Wes Anderson movie? Or, or is it like, hey, is that character supposed to be conveying some other level of sadness? And you need an actress of her caliber to be able to pull that off while also kind of having a comedic moment with the kid. I honestly, you know, I think I'm probably more with, with you there on that. I think maybe this is just something you have to accept with Wes Anderson movies. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm always glad to see Edward Norton and Saoirse Ronan, right. um, like, pop up and stuff. But, like, I, I did feel that with Willem Dafoe for a second. I was like, well, Willem Dafoe's in this. This is going to be great. And then he just, he, I don't, I think he literally just have any lines. And he plays a character called Albert the Abacus, which is fantastic. But, like, <laughs> you know, the logs in the, in the, it's up there with the Spike Lee names in the movie movie name Hall of Fame, but yeah, it's um, it's uh, yeah, I definitely felt that with, and I think the third the third segment was the the biggest on the sort of rotating rotating cast of of, of people outside of you know Henry Winkler and Bob Balaban as uh, as as Adrian Brody's uncles, you know I think I forgave it a little bit later that sort of that sort of reservation because I think again that final conversation. I, th- I think this the third segment is very much sort of a showcase for Jeffrey Wright and Stephen Park, the who play the lieutenant. Or obviously, he plays Robuck Wright, but Stephen Park Stephen Park plays the lieutenant. And I don't know, maybe this is giving too much credit to Wes Anderson. This might be, but I think this is sort of where he started to at least address, or maybe not address, or at least look at the criticisms of you know the lack of people of color in his movies. And, you know, the lack of sort of storylines for people of color, because in, in the third segment, again, the, he uses humor and he uses sort of the fascination with food to, to hide it. But it really is a story about two people in pain and want, and who or who used to be in pain and have left to a different place to escape from it, or who feel the need to sort of roll between places because they don't feel at home. And, you know, and, and I think, I mean, Roebuck writes sort of, explicitly says that he uh in in that you know in, in that whole sequence but he explicitly says when when leah schreiber's character the talk show host which i think is based on has to be based on that one time that james baldwin appeared on i think it must have been johnny carson or something and he gave that very blistering speech maybe not johnny carson probably too lighted for it but he appeared on the talk show and that's a famous james baldwin clip and he um um he uh you know and the Schreiber asks him why he writes about food and he explicitly says like you know i'm lonely and you know i still feel lonely but my youth was even more lonely it was because of who i am um because i'm a gay black man and he but there was always you know there wouldn't always be a place for him but there would always be a table there would always be food to eat and i found that really 
really sort of interesting and fascinating. And um, again, this sort of, you know, this brief flash of emotion um, amidst the, the sort of the ridiculousness. I, I don't know. Okay, this is a sort of a sidebar. I don't know if you felt this too, but my friend and I, who, the, the friend who I saw this with, as soon as we get who got out of the theater, we're like, and I was thinking this in the movie, and she was clearly thinking this too. So as soon as we got out of the theater, we were like, were there was there a lot of intentional sexual tension between Jeffrey Wright and Leah Schreiber's character? Like, did like Leah Schreiber want to leap over the table and kiss? I definitely felt that, but you know, maybe I'm reading it into it too much. I can't say I picked anyway. up on it, but I can't say I can't say I picked up on that. But at the same time, I was like, I was my head was on a swivel that that entire for the entirety yeah. of the that act. So I, I I probably would have had trouble picking up on anything because I was just trying to figure out what was going on. So uh, you, not I'm you're not saying, saying you're wrong. You're, you were saying you're a little bit disenchanted with the the animation sort of sequence. What what sort of landed for you? Or what didn't? Well, I mean. I don't even know if I was disenchanted by the fact it was animation so much as it just felt like it was throwing something else on there when it, it already had so much going on. And it went on, like you said, it went on for a while on top of that, where I'm like, I like just kind of wanted Yeah, I was like, I kind of just wanted to figure out what's going on with the story. And it feels like he's just having a fun little digression. So in a vacuum, I'm not necessarily opposed to doing something visually inventive like that, but I just wasn't really feeling the story enough at that point to really get with him. Um, or, or like I... In in every second you're doing that, Jeffrey Wright's not on the screen, and Jeffrey Wright was like maybe the best part of the whole movie. That's true. So um, yeah. that's kind of where I'm with it. Again, I love so much of this movie. I think it's it's tied for <laughs> number one of the year along with The Green Knight. But it's um I did love that uh, in the epilogue, Jeffrey Wright's character is the one to sort of start writing the obituary. I I sort of I sort of thought that Jeffrey Wright's character is maybe he's not the the, the emotional throughline of the entire movie, but just by virtue of the fact that he's only in the last third. But, um, you know, I think that his character really best uh, contextualizes and represents the themes of a lot of the movie, which is, you know, writing as a form of reaching out and writing as uh, and making art as a form of dealing with loneliness. And yeah, but yeah, I can definitely I can definitely see, you know, where you are on the on the, uh, the sort of. I don't know if mystery is the right word, but the. The way that a lot of the third story seemed to be deliberately masking that kind of like, it, it seemed to be almost asking you to say, okay, get back to the story, <laughs> right? Yeah, and I'm, I'm hesitant to like criticize it too much for that because like, look, Wes Anderson's going to do his own thing. He shouldn't not do his own thing because it's not for me because it's clearly for a lot of people. So it's like, I know you're doing what works for you. It's just not necessarily a very, it's, it's not, it's, that is not a part, a piece of the movie that is for me at all. And that, that that's mm-hmm. to me that's a more fair way to put it than to like say it's not good because I know a lot of people that really did like it, including yourself. It's just I I, I might just want something a little more straightforward narratively. But it's you know he's very good at what he does, and a lot of the stuff that he's good at doing that repeats. It's not some of it does work for me, even if a lot of the tonal stuff doesn't. Like I think I, I don't find any of his movies like unwatchable, or I don't dislike any of them really all that strongly. Like like like, I, like you kind of said, I don't think he really is capable of making a bad movie because there's going to be so much interesting stuff to watch on the scene screen anyway like i said right when we started like there i've already heard a lot of people talk about how they liked even better the second time because they picked up on just so much other stuff and who knows if i go back and watch this again whenever i have the time i might not be so concerned with following all these plot machinations because i kind of already got it now and i'm sure i will get something else out of everything he's doing visually on this in this movie in the background because there's a lot of it from what i understand and i don't know if i even really took in a small fraction of it so look i think a, a lot of what he does is like extremely effective and it just makes it watchable because it's fun what to watch the camera and watch all the production design. Uh, so I it's give him credit. I give him credit for always executing at a high level of that, even if the story isn't always like hundred percent for me. It's interesting that you say, you know, that like these are, this is the trademark for Wes Anderson for you. I think for me, or, you know, this is the reason that like makes it sort of watchable for you. I think for, you know, obviously I like all of that. I love, I'm a 20-something man who still loves model trains. Of course, I'm going to love everything Wes Anderson <laughs> does. But like, you know, I love all of that. I love the miniatures. I love the, the flourishes and I love the pans and, the, and you know, the zooms and all of that. But to me, Wes Anderson is not Wes Anderson or, you know, Wes Anderson is not the, the filmmaker that I love without those sort of flashes of sadness or without those sort of, you know, those flashes of melancholy and loneliness. Uh, loneliness sorry. It's, um, it's, yeah, I, th- I think... Without that, I would still like, you know, I would still like the the sort of the styles, the styling, the meticulousness, and the the miniatures and all of that. But he definitely wouldn't be my 
one of my favorite working directors without that. You know, I, I think that the fusion of that sort of thing, the fusion of those two things is what makes it for me. Um, and I, think, I guess that's part of why Isle of Dogs is maybe my least favorite because even though, again, caveat, I still quite like it, but you know, it's, it's just a very good film for me as opposed to, you know, a great Wes Anderson one because it's, I think it contained the least, even though it was one of his most visually interesting movies and his most visually novel and his most, you know, he did a lot of, he really went all in on his Wes Anderson stuff in Isle of Dogs. I think it lacks a little bit of that, that emotion, that emotional through line, that sort of, that, that sadness. It does speak a little bit on, you know, on the pain of growing up and losing people and, and losing friends and, and you know, not, not being able to understand others. But it doesn't speak as nearly as much, I think, as something like your French Dispatch does or like the Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou does. Um, and, you know, the Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou is nearly unrelenting and it's sort of, you know, in its sort of constant switch between the quirky Wes Anderson humor and miniatures, all of that, and the deep, um, the deep sadness. And it's, um, and and that's also, you know, a lot of what I like about the French Dispatch. It it is good for you know the Wes the people the Wes Anderson fans who like the the Wes Andersonness, the trademark mm. visual stuff. But it's um, for me, it was it was a really emotionally powerful movie. I think it sort of succinctly spoke to a lot of the themes that he's developed. It really, for me, did, did feel like this is the movie he'd been working towards for a while, which I didn't expect at all. Well, it's funny you say that because I, I feel like I've already heard chatter that this next movie he's already wrapped is like maybe going to be as big as yet. Uh, How's has he already wrapped it? Asteroid something, I think. Asteroid City, City. Yeah. according according to IMDb, it's 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 post production. Um, and wow. and it has like wow. just the cast that it's funny. It's he really does have his own you know repertory company, but it's like he's just adding to it. Like you know, out of yeah. just like the people listed on the IMDb for it, like ten of them were were in French Dispatch. It was like. Uh, Tom, Tom Hanks is in this one. Yeah, well, yeah. So it's like they have like Tony Everori, we have Shriver, Jeffrey Wright, Fisher Stevens, Tilda Swinton, Rupert Friend, Jason Schwartzman, Steve Park, Adrian Brody, and Bill Murray. It's like, oh, on top of that, I'll just add Margot Robbie, Tom Hanks, and Scarlett Johansson. So, uh, yeah. and, and apparently it's just, like huge in scope and a big budget and all that. And so who knows? Maybe it'll be curious to see if what direction that goes in because it sounds like it's going to be a big deal. I, you know, I, I'm always happy that Jeffrey Wright's coming back. I think he's sort of, I think even before this movie, I thought he was one of the best working or our favorite working actors. And uh, I think this is maybe the best performance he's given. He's never bad in anything. Like, you know, he had like two scenes in No Time to Die, made the most of them. Uh, yeah. Was like the one person yeah. that came out of the debacle that was the Goldfinch relatively unscathed. Oh God, I was about to, uh, yeah, exactly. He was, like, it's it's a great performance in a, in a, just a terribly, I think not a terrible movie. But it was just, you know. <laughs> As someone who loves the book, it was just devoid. I think it made me go back and appreciate the book a bit less, which is sad. But like, it, it, it debuted it, it, it debuted at TIFF. Did you see it at TIFF or did you see it somewhere else? Or just I saw it, regular? I think I, I, yeah, I saw it in, in, you know, just regular. I just remember yeah. thinking it was like, oh, they wouldn't have like taken this at TIFF if it wasn't like at least somewhat good. Uh, and I'm pretty yeah, sure that's where it had its world debut. So I was like, I, I was like, man, that'd be a shame if Arjun like, you know, blew one of his uh, uh, bigger ticket TIFF purchases on that one. So good for you for uh, not doing that, I guess. <laughs> yeah, no, this, I mean, this year I only saw, uh, I saw Benediction, Ali and Deva and Belfast, which was, mm. uh, which is surprisingly good. But um, yeah, that year I didn't see, I didn't see uh, the Goldfinch. I just saw it in regular theaters. And I, I remember distinctly waiting. I remember distinctly in the Goldfinch for this this feeling of okay, I'm waiting for the feeling to start, and it just never did. And I, it had such big, it had such a pedigree, right? It was, I think, Roger Deakins' first movie after coming off of winning his Oscar. Yeah, he did that instead of like Dune, that. or he did that instead of Dune. But then he like just signed up for Jesus. nineteen. <laughs> but then he was able to like do nineteen seventeen right after. I'm pretty sure, yeah. so it worked out okay for him. Mm -hmm. And yeah, Jeffrey Arts, uh, it was good in that, unlike anyone else in the movie. And, <laughs> yeah, um, you know, I think. I mean, he's great in Basquiat, his uh, the, the 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 biopic, which also has Benicio del Toro in it. He's great in that. He's just in Broken Flowers. He's incredibly funny, and uh, yeah. But also, you know, um, Steve Park was great in this movie. I'm happy he's coming back for Asteroid City. Yeah, I think he uses the repertory his his repertory <laughs> past well. Yeah, Arjun, uh, I think we've pretty well covered French Dispatch. You obviously highly recommend it. You you watch just about as many movies as I do, and it's in your top three for the year. Well, I was on you as definitely high much more than I do, but yes. <laughs> well, while, while I was not as high on it, I think 
you know, there's certainly a plenty to take from it. And if you're more inclined to like Wes Anderson than I am, then definitely go see it. I doubt anyone's still listening that didn't already watch it, but you know, whatever. Uh, Arjun, this is the time of the podcast where at this point we normally have people plug stuff. If you have any kind of social media you want to plug or something else that's you've watched recently, you want people to check out anything else you just want to throw out there before we sign off. Oh God, I have no idea. I have done nothing in the past year. I um, My last year has been occupied by me not handing in stuff and then family dying and then having COVID. So it's, <laughs> I, I have done nothing really of note to plug in the last year, I guess. I don't um, mean personal work. If there's like a TV show you really dug that you're watching or oh, okay. just another, another movie, you just, yeah. you, you, you just named three movies at TIFF. Did you particularly love any of those yeah. that you want people to keep an eye out for? I was, I was going to say, thank God, not personal work, because generally when I'm given an opportunity to plug stuff, what I want to, what I plug is this, and I can't plug this on this podcast, so, you know. Oh, um, thank you. Um, um, but I think, uh, what have I seen recently? Um, Benediction, which I saw at TIFF, was even more, you know, like you just said, this Wes Anderson, if you're inclined to like Wes Anderson, check out the French Dispatch. Benediction was even more of that. Like, if you're inclined to like Terrence Davis's work, check that out, but maybe not if you're inclined to, you know, like it um uh belfast surprised me with how i really did not expect to like it as much as i did um, belfast is my number four for the year i think mm. um outside of that i think the one tv show that i want the one piece of media that i want to plug is probably um this came out since the last time i was on the podcast so it's like you know season two is i came out earlier this year season one came out i think just pre-pandemic last last year um, feel good the uh, may martin's tv show um i think i've heard about that Netflix. it is my favorite show since community and wow. community is maybe one of my favorite pieces of art of all time so feel good is it's only two seasons each episode two seasons of six episodes each uh, episode is less than half an hour so it's very short um and it's i think one of the most mature and interesting shows that i've seen in a very long time i think it's you know it's one of those shows that really does deal with everything. It's on the surface, it's about addiction and relationships. And it's very much not just about that. It's about how these things affect your relationships with your family and friends, how these things affect your ability to build relationships, you know, how these things affect um, if you're someone who has, you know, had a, someone who has had addictive tendencies slash feelings or knows someone who has, you know, how you would defer between like, do I just like something or is this the feeling of addiction? That kind of thing. It's, it's very good. It's also, it's quite, I mean, it's squarely a comedy drama. So it's not always funny, but the fun, it's, it's, it's quite funny and it's very sort of quirky and interesting. And right. um, I just, I really, I love it very much. It is uh, really one of the best TV shows I've watched recently. And I think it's more or less my new benchmark for good TV after community. Wow. That is very high praise. So I know how big of a community fan yeah. you are. So very I strong. Think, you know, you might not like it. I had some. I had some friends who, or had one friend who, said he didn't like it too much because he felt it was emotionally distant. It's not the same Wes Anderson emotionally distant. Like it's not hyper stylized, but um, I think it can feel a little bit emotionally distant, especially if you don't like the main character. It was basically an autobiographical version of the comedian who created it. But um, it's. Um, I really like it. It's. It's. It's very good. All right. Well, I appreciate the uh, recommendation because I hadn't, I think I'd heard of it, but hadn't really uh, taken the time to learn very much. I'm not going to spend too long plugging much. I, I, I think this podcast will hopefully come out bef before I post my one that I'm going to be doing with uh, our friends, Elijah and Daniel on Last Night in Soho and Harder They Fall. Uh, as of the recording of this, Harder They Fall has been out on Netflix for a day, but I haven't gotten to it yet. I would highly recommend Last Night in Soho, though if you're someone that goes to horror movies like wanting to have a bunch of jump scares, maybe not the kind of thing for you, but like, and quite frankly, it's for like a good chunk of its runtime. It's not a horror movie, which I really like. It kind of sets up a world that you, you know, all of a sudden care about to then be put at risk, which is what I like when horrors and thrillers do that. And uh, just, it feels like it's just a one long visual flex from Edgar Wright. So, you know, maybe not the movie that's going to like make you like jump out of your skin, but like still very very haunting and has a lot of interesting depictions of trauma and uh look beyond the visual flex he's like i'm gonna before queen's gambit came out he was like i'm gonna go get the two like two of the best young actresses under 25 working today to make this movie for me uh and thomas and mckenzie and anya taylor joy and they're both really good too so i think it's definitely worth your time i hope people check it out and so edgar Wright keeps get keeps getting to make movies like that um as usual 25 Jesus, fuck, I'm old. Okay. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 yeah. I think Thomas and McKenzie is like, I don't know. Andy Taylor Joy might be like 26 at this point. Uh, when they made, when they made the movie, um, I guess they're under 25, but I need to get a job. Okay. <laughs> I mean, like, I, yeah. Uh, oh no. Yeah. Andy, Andy Taylor Joy is exactly 25. Uh, but yeah, I, uh, look, I, yeah. Every time I see like anyone like doing anything like in entertainment, that's like my age, it's like, Oh my God, what, what am I doing? Uh, but, uh, as usual, I'm Josh Jernavoy on Twitter, J O S H J U R N O V O Y. Same thing on letterbox. The podcast Twitter is at rewind movie pod. The podcast email is rewind movie pod at gmail.com uh, coming up next. Uh, like I said, it probably going to be that podcast on last night in Soho and harder they fall, but it's just like a, it is an avalanche of time for movies. I'm going to be recording something on uh, Spencer at some point I'll be doing one on Eternals. So all that stuff is coming out in some order. I'll probably have to start doing twice a week and, you know, quit my day job. I don't know. We'll see where this goes. Thanks again to Arjun for joining. Hopefully he will be back sometime before 2000, early 2024. Uh, as, as uh, Thanks to everyone for listening and we'll see you next time.